This is Soccer Pilgrim, the podcast dedicated to soccer and travel, where each stadium is shrine and its fans delay people. For the traveler, it is another culture to explore. Welcome to the Soccer Pilgrim podcast with Jason Kim. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Soccer Pilgrim. I'm your host, Jason Kim. And today's episode in the season of War and Soccer, I decided to talk about something that isn't about a rivalry that was founded on an actual physical conflict, but on a person that was able to stop a conflict. If you're a soccer fan, you have you already know where I'm going with this or who I'm about to talk about. And the person who I'm speaking about is obviously, for those who don't know, is Didier Drogba. And the reason why I want to talk about him because he not only is he a personal favorite of mine, he is one of my favorite strikers of all time. And this is about the story of when Didier Drogba and his teammates, his national teammates on the Ivory Coast, were able to put an end to a civil war and bring about peace and foster a democratic process into the conflicts that they do have within the Ivory Coast, which we'll get into a little later. To start this episode, I want to talk a little bit about Didier Drogba and where he's from, and then we'll move on to the Ivory Coast and the Civil War, and then we'll end it on how he ended, or how his initiative, well, let's call it initiative, uh, stopped the Civil War within the Ivory Coast. And also, I guess I'll end as to why I why a lot of people genuinely love Didier Drogba, not just because of what he's done for his country, but also as a soccer player and why he is worth watching. Well, he's retired now, but at the time, why he was worth watching. So all this to say is that for today's episode, I want to change it up. This is the story of my favorite striker of all time, the big game man, Chelsea's clutch player of the century, the man who stopped the Civil War and made Montreal fall in love with football, and that is Didier Drogba. So to start off, off, I want to briefly go over Drogba's story. Uh, I'm not going to get to all into the details, but things that you should know as a person where he's coming from and uh, I guess a little bit about his about his career. So Drogba was born in the Ivory Coast in 1976. Sorry, 1978. And at a young age, his parents had sent him to France to uh, train as a professional soccer player. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it says he was sent there first at five. Then he later returned at like 10 or 15 years old. And that means from a very young age, his parents knew that his path was professional athleticism professional sports and soccer in France was sort of his way to that so he played for Le Mans and he was in the youth academy then he went to Guingamp yeah I've never had to say that name ever and then he ended up in Marseille where he sort of built up his reputation and that's where Jose Mourinho caught uh, discovered him or was uh, interested in him and brought him over to Chelsea and he played in Chelsea for eight years between 2004 to 2012 and then after that, he went to China for a year, then played in Galatasaray for a year in Turkey. He went back to Chelsea for a year. And then after Chelsea, he spent a year or two in Montreal. And when he came to Montreal, he was like, it, it was superstardom. People were waiting for him at the airport. There was huge celebrations. It seemed like the entire African community of Montreal showed up to every single impact game. They were there at the airport. They were there at every impact game. Not only were it the African community showing up to games, but it was there was a greater interest from mainstream Montrealers about this man. They've heard so much about him. You know, he's a big player from Europe, African player, good-looking guy, big like just a, a successful player. You know, all I could think of whenever I think of Drogba, I think of his header against Bayern Munich in the fi- Champions League final. 
And that's the kind of man that Montreal waited. One thing leads to another, and then he his time in Montreal wasn't so great. Uh, he had a falling out with the coach, um, Mauro Biello. I think it started with Biello saying that Drugba's lazy, doesn't train hard enough, doesn't hustle hard enough in the field, stuff like this. But I thought that was a mistake because a player like Drugba could still turn up in every game and still create magic. We've seen that many times before. So he had a falling out with the Montreal coach, and then ended up going to a USL team, the Phoenix Rising, and sort of creating his own cult at the Phoenix Rising. And they've won... The, Phoenix Rising actually won the league last year, and Drugba was there to celebrate with them, I believe. And that's sort of the reputation of Drugba, is that wherever he goes, he sort of creates this aura, this magic around the club. Chelsea is forever marked with Drugba's name. The first Champions League win that Chelsea... The first Champions League trophy that Chelsea has ever won was because of Drugba. And Montreal fell in love with soccer and realized the potential the city has with soccer because Drugbo was able to bring that out with fan attendance and people just going crazy over him and even hockey fans knew who Drugbo was this man you like if you were a Montrealer at the time when Drugbo was here you knew who this man was and how much he means to the improvement of sports in the city of, of Montreal so I say all this about Drugbo and it sounds like how is this related to a civil war or him stopping a civil war? And that's a great question. But I felt like I have to say this because of the space, a cultural space, and even the emotional space that someone like Drugba occupies. Because remember, as we said earlier, soccer has a way of transcending the mundane where people's feelings and emotions get involved. Drugba is one of those guys where if you talk crap or talk shit about Drugba, I will have an illicit reaction towards that because I... I'm not a Chelsea fan, but it's just a, something about his character and his personality that's very attractive, you know? And you could tell that he's not just a footballer. You could you get a sense that this is a genuine person that you would love to have a conversation with over a cup of coffee. So I'm building up Drugba's character so you'd understand why someone of this stature could bring an end to a civil war. So Didier Drugba is not arguably, but perhaps the most important and most famous player that the Ivory Coast has produced. I mean, there's a Toure brothers like Yaya Toure and Kolo Toure that comes to mind that you would say, well, I mean, those guys, you can't forget those for sure. But I guess there's more love for Drugba because he is a striker. He is a goal scorer. And it usually always ends up happening that the forwards get all the love as opposed to the defenders or the midfielders. So now that I've sort of established Drugba's character and who he is, although it's only been like you know, 8-10 minutes that I've talked about him, I don't think there is more to say for those who may not know who he is. It's just that he's he has an infectious personality and you know he's genuine. He frequently, well at the time, not maybe not so much anymore, but he frequently does go on TV and go on interviews and gives his opinion and gives you know speaks his mind, if you will. If you listen to his French interviews, I find his French interviews far better than his English ones. Because his French interviews are f very honest. You can tell the way he speaks. It's relaxed. It's honest. He's speaking his mind. Even when he was a young man playing at Chelsea, I always found him to carry himself as a man. You know what I mean? Like these today's these new soccer players, they don't really carry themselves the same way. They carry themselves, I guess, like a typical millennial, if you will. But it, it's different. It's a generational thing, I suppose. All right, so let's get into the uh, into the civil war in the first Ivorian civil war. So there's been like two, I think, Ivorian civil war. But for this episode, we'll be focusing on the first one because that's the one that Drogba was able to, I guess, help bring an end. 
So a lot of info I get obviously is from Wikipedia. Then I went to other sources to sort of condense and try to give you the, the most accurate information as possible. And what I found was the war in, in, in the Ivory Coast is rooted in religious and ethnic identity. But above all, the Ivory Coast found itself in an electoral situation for the first time after Felix Ufue Boigny's 33-year reign as president. So, uh, Ufue Boigny or Felix or HB, let's call him HB, Ufue Boigny. HB was president for 30 years and at the end of those 33-year 33, 33 reign, uh, they he called upon an election. But the problem is that when you rule essentially as a dictator for 33 years and you say we can have an election now, I mean... It's conflict's gonna happen because a no one knows how an election works, and then b because no one knows how an election works, how easy is it to rig it? Not saying this was rigged, but this was the core of it. I mean, a lot of people would probably say it's rigged. So let's take a further step back. So a lot of the conflict comes down to a sudden end of one man's power, and then there's a power vacuum that occurs, and they expect this power vacuum to happen peacefully through elections now i don't think that happens when there isn't a strong system of democracy placed beforehand no peace will come afterwards when a 33 year reign comes to an end it's like game of thrones everyone just goes to war for that one spot so who are the who are those fighting for that spot so throughout the history of the ivory coast uh the country experienced an influx of immigration from other african countries neighboring the ivory coast and particularly towards the north of the country uh notably from countries with a high muslim population like uh like like mali or chad or cameroon i believe is nearby senegal is nearby as well burkina faso is nearby and all the all these countries have a muslim presence muslim presence but have a muslim population whether it's a significant minority or it's a majority. But a lot of these people were moving into the Ivory Coast. And also, before I go any further, a lot of these problems that you see in Africa, not just in Africa, but in the Middle East and also in Asia, a lot of these problems has everything to do with European colonization and you know creating these random borders for European standards, these very Westphalian borders onto an African context that had... A different concept of borders, but not only did they have a different concept of borders, but they it was multicultural. It was like a thousand different kingdoms and tribes and city states all doing their own thing throughout the continent. So you have a superpower like in this case France taking a chunk of land, and then next to them taking more chunks of land around them, and the British being down the coast, and then the Portuguese being further down south, and the Dutch being further down south. You know, it's in the late nineteenth century. There was something called a scramble for Africa, which all the European superpowers were essentially dividing up the continent of Africa for themselves. The Germans get two parts, the, the Portuguese get a significant part, the Spanish get nothing, the French get a lot, the Belgium keep the Congo, the English get east, west, whatever African part of the world they want. It's, it's colonization in the 18th and 19th century and the beginning of the 17th century. Okay, so that's a little bit of history, but... Again, how does this come back to the Ivory Coast? With those European borders placed randomly without respecting tribal boundaries or ethnic boundaries, you created a situation where you've put all the people who do not like each other or who've had beefs in the past, you put all those guys in a room and you threw the keys out. The keys to leave the room, you threw it away. The keys are gone. 
now you're just stuck in this room. And this is what Africa kind of looks like, especially in the 20th century, mid 20th century in particular. So with that being said, in the Ivory Coast, you have a lot of these Muslim immigrants from other African countries moving in and they move into the north, you know, they find jobs and like most any other immigrant story, they find jobs, they settle down, create new life. With the influx of uh, Muslim immigrants from other African countries moving into the northern part of the Ivory Coast, you essentially have a northern part of a country that's essentially majority Muslim and then the south of the Ivory Coast being majority Christian. So already you could tell that there is a tension creating within a country where the north is Muslim, the south is Christian. We've seen these stories many times before. You know, Lebanon is another example of that. So with the increase of immigrants uh, from Burkina Faso specifically, there was a lot of ethnic tensions towards them because they're not from the Ivory Coast. With the influx of Im uh, Burkina Bay, which are people from Burkina Faso, there was resentment towards them in the Ivory Coast. And a lot of them were obviously not happy. I guess similar discourse as you find in North America. They're stealing our jobs, stealing our land. And, you know, perhaps the same, definitely the same discourse is happening. But also the reason why there was such a stress, because all the all the good farming lands were in the south, which was majority Muslim. And a lot of these uh, northern Muslim Ivorians, are specifically Burkina Bay from other countries, were moving south into these farmlands, creating further tension. So... Violence was initially turned towards African foreigners, like the Burkina Bay, for an example. The prosperity of the Ivory Coast had attracted many Africans from West Africa, and by 1998, they constituted 26% of the population. So 26% of the Ivory Coast came from other African countries, and 56% of the 26% were from Burkina Faso, very specific. In this atmosphere of increasing racial tension, Ufue Boigny, the president, or HB, policy of granting nationality to Burkina Bay resident in the Ivory Coast was criticized as being solely to gain their political support. So imagine in the case of the United States, you had a president who decides to give citizenship to all uh, illegal Hispanics living in America. That's kind of what it, he's done, and it obviously upset a lot of people, and it led to civil war. Again, for everyone watching, this is an episode about Didier Drogba and how he stopped the civil war in the Ivory Coast. So all those on Instagram Live, thank you for tuning in. Tensions climb, tensions escalate. In 1995, the tensions turned violent when Burkina Bay were killed in plantations at Tabu during the ethnic riots. And Tabu is towards the southern part of the Ivory Coast. So now you have a full-on violence towards a particular ethnic group. Ethnic violence had already existed between owners of lands and their host, particularly in the west side of the country, between the Bitten and the Baule, which are ethnic tribes within the, within the Ivory Coast, and also between the Bitten and the Lobi. Uh, Didi Jogba, let's take a look. I, Didi Jogba, I'm pretty sure is Bitte or was born Bitte. Yes, he is. So Didi Jogba was born Bitte, so his people were at war essentially or had tensions between two different ethnic tribes within the Ivory Coast. And since independence, people from the center of the country, the Baule, have been encouraged to move to fertile lands to the west and the southwest of the country where they have been granted superficialities to grow cocoa. So they've been given money. Oh, cocoa, coffee, and comestibles. Comestibles? I have no idea what that is. I guess cosmetics? Yeah, anyway, years later, some Bete have come to resent the successful farmers. Voting became difficult to these immigrants as they refused voting rights. So as you can see, things are escalating. Things are not going so well. All these ethnic tribes that used to be at odds against each other are now at odds. And 
or are now the odds are gone violent or you know that things are escalating which is not good so for the interest of saving time i'm not going to go into too much into how all this conflict all the details all the battles that's not what i'm interested in i'm more interested in what drug butt did and it'll be qu- quite um quite simple it might sound simple but it's not so much all the little policies he's done for himself it's not all the things he's done with our with non-profit organization to end war but it's rather the self-awareness of the cultural and emotional space he has in the Ivory Coast as we're seeing here things have escalated and then it eventually leads on the full-on war uh, in which part of the Ivorian army decides to uh, you know decides to split from the government and join the Muslims and then you know that's how things sort of went out of control so war is escalating between Muslims and and Christians if not war is full-blown happening and now comes the time when Drugba, not just Drugba, but the Ivorian coast at this time in 2009, was it 2009 or 2008? 2008 or 2009 where they were qualifying for the World Cup through the African qualifiers, and they were almost not going to make it. They were playing against Sudan, and if they were to lose to Sudan, then they wouldn't make it to the World Cup. But not just making it to the World Cup, but above all, be able to qualify and just play well. The, most part thing is for Ivory Coast to play well against Sudan, which is a beatable team. Beating Sudan shouldn't be hard on paper. After the Ivory Coast qualified for the 2006 World Cup by defeating Sudan in 8th of October 2005, Drogba made a desperate plea to, to the Cabans, asking them to lay down their arms, a plea which was answered with a ceasefire in a five, after five years of civil war. So the civil war essentially kicked off in 2000 or 2001, and Drogba... After defeating Sudan, there's a famous video on YouTube, which I'll insert the clip of what he said into this podcast episode. Ivoirien, Ivoirien, du nord et du sud, du centre à l'ouest. Vous avez vu, on vous a prouvé aujourd'hui que toute la Côte d'Ivoire peut cohabiter, peut jouer ensemble pour un même objectif, qualifier pour le, se qualifier pour le mondial. Vous nous avez promis que cette fête allait rassembler le peuple. Aujourd'hui, on vous demande, s'il vous plaît, on se met à genoux. Le seul pays, le seul pays de l'Afrique qui a toutes ses richesses ne peut pas sombrer dans la guerre comme ça. S'il vous plaît, déposez tous les armes. Faites les élections, organisez les élections et tout ira du mieux. On veut s'amuser. Arrêtez but essentially he he calls everyone he asks everyone to depose vos armes so to, you know drop your arms or uh, drop your weapons rather and let's come to peace let the political process let the peaceful democratic process take place and organize elections and move forward as a country as an Ivorian nation as one not split with the religious and ethnic divide but move it as one through a through a democratic process. Now imagine, <laughs> imagine Canada was at war. Imagine Quebec decides to take up arms and like split from the rest of the country. Who would be that guy? Who would be the sports athlete to make amends to bring peace to Canada? It's kind of a funny thing to say, although not totally unrealistic. But who would be that hockey player, the ice hockey player, to bring it all together? 
if that person still exists today, maybe Maurice Richard, but he's dead or he might even be pro-Quebec uh, in this day and age, but we'll never know. Or it could be Ken Dryden, but he's not really from Montreal or not really from uh, from Quebec. So it's hard to say, but you, and oftentimes in desperate situations, especially at war, you need someone of a really strong cultural and emotional figure that can sort of lead this country through the trauma and through the trouble. And Drugba was that guy. He brought the Ivory Coast to the 2006 World Cup and then the 2010 World Cup. In a way, Drugba reminds us that, if, this is for me at least, Drugba reminds me that you know football is much more than just sports and just... You know, just get coming with you know getting together with your friends and playing. There's there's a lot to it that could stop a war, and I think that's what always stops me. It's not so much a drug bust character, but so much his self awareness and understanding that what he could do with what he has, and he's done much, which is stop a war, create a lot of nonprofit organizations to help to help those in his native community. I mean, he's become an ambassador for the United Nations, or well, ambassador for the United for the UNDP, the United Nations Development Program. So that to say. He ended a war. Uh, war ends. They bring back political stability. Democratic process has been established. And Ivory Coast seems to be at peace until a second civil war broke out, I think, a few years ago, which I'm not going to get into. I just want to talk about the first one because that's the first one that everyone knows about, that talks about, that famous video of him dropping to his knees, him, him and his teammates dropping to their knees and pretty much pleading both sides of the conflict to the, to turn to peaceful democratic solutions as opposed to shooting each other. So in this season, I talked a lot about soccer and war and how a lot of these matches, these historical matches, were founded on real conflicts like Old Firm Derby or El Clasico or there's probably there's a million of other ones that uh, that exist that are based on real conflicts that no that have now become soccer matches. Inter Milan versus AC Milan is really more of a the history of it is an economic match between the rich and the poor. And now it's so much who's the best Milan team in Milan. That's that's what the match has become today. But it's still founded on real conflicts. Whereas Drugba, this episode is not about, an, about a match that was founded on real conflict. It's about a man who stopped a very real modern war that was happening with his, within his own country. If you listen to his interviews, especially his French interviews... He speaks so eloquently and elegantly, but it's it's not because it has nothing to do with him being a black guy who can speak perfectly. It has more to do with a man who is passionate about what he's doing and he is communicating way better than any soccer player I've ever seen or just any athlete. Most athletes suck at talking and he is an elegant speaker because most athletes are like complete bros and, you know, use their bodies, not their minds. But, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> but that's such a like 90s. That's such a 90s view of jocks and nerds and shit. And today is so much more complicated. Anyway, that's a, a tangent. So for me, the reason why Drugba is perhaps my favorite striker of all time is not so much the way he plays. It isn't really so much... I mean, it definitely is the way he plays, but it's not so much his prowess. He's not like a Messi Ronaldo where you can see him score 50 goals a game. He's the kind of striker that reminded me of what strikers were like when I was growing up. Frontman number nine, bullying the defense, being strong, being strong in the air, you know, uh, just timing your runs right, just being clinical finisher, just simple, simple, simple stuff, and he embodies that, and that's what I love about Drugba. And also, he, you can tell his influence in the dressing room. People seem positive, optimistic, encouraged, and even, even, um, even confident 
There's something about him that kind of elevates everyone's game. If you watch the documentary on Amazon Prime, This Is Football, and they talk about Juan Mata and that that Champions League final, the way he talks to Drogba, you can tell that Drogba is quite an emotional person because he already gave up. He, in his head, in that final, thought the game was over. But Juan Mata looked at him and was like, man, you just need one ball from me and you're going to score. And that's what happened. Juan Mata took the free, took the corner kick, crossing the box. Drogba heads it. It's super strong header. And the ball was sort of going away from him. Heads a top corner, beats Manuel Neuer. It's 1-1. And now they're heading to extra time. And next thing you know, they go to shootouts. And Drogba is the last person, the last penalty taker to win the game for Chelsea. The 10th man to take that last penalty. That is the most stressful, stressful penalty position to be in. I was there. I was I was in a playoff game like that. And not very stressful. And he did it at the Allianz Arena. So that man's a legend. And that's one reason why I love him is because he wears his heart on his sleeves. And he fights for... Yeah, it sounded like he gave up, but... He's the kind of man who needs someone to just give him a bit of foundation and just push him. And that's that's what happened. I'm a, I'm a fan of Drogba. I love him. Especially when he came to Montreal and he just sort of told, he totally embraced the Montreal scene, the Montreal culture. He said he came to Montreal because he loved the culture. He loved the language. Well, he's a French speaker. So for him, it's natural to come here. But also to help grow the, the game's profile here in the city. And he's done that. So for me, the Didier Drogba has a special place in my soccer uh, pantheon. He's definitely going to be my favorite striker of all time, not because of his performance and not because he's a big game player. I love big game players over any other player. And Drugba is the big game player. He's the one that at a cup final, you want him at a cup final. You want him to be starting. And if he were to come off the bench, I put him, I make him come off the bench maybe at the 60th minute because you need to give him 30 minutes, he's going to make something happen. Maybe, but you need to give him more. But anyway, this episode was about Drugba, soccer and war, and why I loved it. Oh, fun fact, he is he made Time Magazine's World's 100 Most Influential People by 2010. It definitely has a lot to do with his, uh, with his effort in ending civil war in his country. So to everyone everyone, tuned in, everyone that tuned into this episode, this uh, episode of Drugba and on the episode of Soccer and War, thank you for tuning in. This was a bit of a shift from other episodes where it's about matches on real conflict there's something different or a man who ended a real civil war with real armed conflicts and i felt like i had to do an episode about him for this episode so for everyone who listened thank you for being in the audience thank you for listening thank you for hanging through i actually maybe i just did a live stream for this episode so if you want to tune into my live stream uh, of recording episodes you can at uh, my instagram jason underscore jisoo g-i-s-o-o at instagram so you can follow me there i'll put every time i record an episode i'll do a live just for fun because what else am i gonna do right anyway thank you for listening thank you for being an audience my name is jason kim from montreal this is soccer pilgrim thank you